Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. And we're going to be in chapter 34, but we got to finish up chapter 33 here, verse 17. Uh, we are still dealing with the aftermath of the golden calf. And that, that sounds like a good title, the aftermath of the golden calf. Um, we are still dealing with that. And, and obviously, anytime you see something like a, the sin of idolatry and wickedness that entered into the camp, there is a wave behind it that the consequences come rolling and there must, it must be dealt with. We talked about this this past Sunday, and I think there's a, a sense in which um, this is the type of stuff that's not always the most fun to talk about. I went, we talked about going through the minor prophets, and it's in there. I was looking at Joel, looking toward two weeks from now, and it's in there. The idea of repentance and the idea of the seriousness of sin. And it's real easy for us to back off of those conversations because it just, sometimes it's just unpleasant, right? You just, keep talking about it and you want, and I, I don't want to hear how bad of a sinner I am. And I don't want to hear that over and over again. But I think when we read the scriptures, that conversation leads us to the place where we need to be to understand our absolute dependence upon the Lord. And that's what we have in our passage. So after the calf came and the judgment came down and the consequences of the sin were so grievous, remember, because the Lord God said, I'm not going with you, remember? You can go, you can have the land, I'm not going with you. And the consequences of the sin were realized at that moment that this has severed the relationship between God and his people. And if you remember, that's exactly what sin did in the beginning. The Lord God with Adam and Eve in the garden there, but when sin entered in, it severed that relationship. It broke it. And so the disastrous nature of sin is seen in the fact that it breaks, severs, destroys the relationship between God and his people. And there is nothing more grievous, more harmful, more disastrous than that. I do believe, and other people may have a different, I, I you know, I uh, considered this some, but you remember when, when Jesus is praying the night before he would be betrayed and go to the cross, that same night he's praying. And he's in the garden and he's got sweat drops of blood, right? And so there's that sweat drops of blood. He's stressed. He has this moment. And he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Now we talked about the cup, remember, in the aftermath here. And he says this, let this cup pass for me. And, and what is it that Jesus is dreading so? What is it? I do not believe Jesus is a wimp. I do not believe he's dreading just simply being beaten and going to the cross. I believe he was prepared for such. Does that make sense? Surely that's, that's going to. I don't think that's what's causing sweat drops of blood coming out. I think what he was having to face was the understanding that for the first time in all of eternity, because Jesus is eternal, the second person of the Trinity. So the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, has existed for all of eternity. And there on that cross, when the earth shook and the sky turned black, for a moment there, 
to bear the weight of sin, he was separated from the Father. And I think as the Lord Jesus is looking at that, he's saying, there is nothing, nothing on this planet worse than that. There's nothing I could face. There's nothing that's the disastrous effects of sin are even seen on the cross when the father, as it says, turned his face away. And so there you see the disastrous name. Jesus says anything else, let it be. But I'm going to take that. I will take the father turning his face away from me so he can turn his face toward those who I've forgiven. And so ultimately, we get here, and that's what we start to see in Exodus 33. The Lord is here, and the consequences of sin are great. The disastrous nature, the Lord says, I'm not going with you. You can go, but I'm not going. And Moses, as we ended it last week, Moses says in verse 14 there, 15, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, if you ain't going, Lord, I ain't going. I'm not going. And so therefore, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? This is who we are, God. This is what we've done. This is it. This is everything. So if you don't go with us, we're not going. Moses before, this is this, four times already in our passage, by the way, he's prayed to God. And he's asked him, just remember your promises. Just remember your promises, Lord. So he's pleading with God to be God. And there it says in verse 17 is what we look to. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. What a great passage there. The Lord says, I've heard your prayers. I will answer and I will follow you. And he says to Moses, I know you by name. And in that moment here of intimacy, Moses has spoken his absolute desperation for God. I can't go if you don't go. I got nothing else. If you don't, if you don't bring it, it's only you, Lord. I'm not doing this without you. He speaks his absolute desperation for God. And in response, God says, I'll go with you. I know you by name. I know you by name. What a blessing that is. So then, Moses interceding on the behalf of the people. The Lord says to Moses, I know you by name. Therefore, I will go with you. Moses rejoicing in this glory that God has shown him, rejoicing in this great answer that he hears. He says, please show me your glory. Now, I find this to be a great response. Show me your glory. Moses has seen God's glory, by the way. He's seen it in other places. He's seen it in other situations. He saw God's glory there um, at the burning bush, remember, the first time when God showed up, the, the bush that was burning and not consumed. The 70 elders there at Mount Sinai saw God's glory. In fact, that's exactly what it says that they saw. There on the mountaintop, he entered into God's glory. He went into God's glory in the tent. Moses has seen God's glory, but God's glory is like a really, really, oh, it's better than this, but I'm going to try to use the illustration. It's like a really, really good dessert. Y'all know what I'm saying? Once you get a good taste of it, what do you want? More. 
And the more you get, what do you want? More. And the more you have, the more. God's glory is such that we as a people who have been created in his image will never, ever, ever grow tired of it. We don't look for another dessert. It will be the dessert that keeps being the dessert we want. Does that make sense to everybody? It's the thing you always will want. It's the thing you cannot get enough of because God's glory is the only thing that will completely and finally satisfy us. We are created by God in his image for his glory. And so his glory is the only thing. That, and what are we looking for? Every single one of us in this room live, our, live every day trying to find satisfaction, don't we? We sit down and eat. We won't satisfy. I keep making food references tonight. I don't know why I did. Maybe it was Randall's meatloaf or something. We, set, we, we wake up in the morning and we talk about whether or not that sleep was satisfying, right? We have conversations. We want them to be sad. We are constantly looking for satisfaction. We want to have some sort of peace in our life and be complete and be full. And what we know from reading God's word is we were designed in such a way that the only thing that can completely and fully satisfy us for all eternity is the Lord God himself. And so ultimately, Moses says, I have seen your glory, give me more. And this request, as Charles Spurgeon said, wasn't him being selfish. This was the greatest request and petition made in all of scripture. Show me your glory. Let me see more. Let me see more. It's the only proper response for us as believers. We want God's glory and give us more. It's like the, it's like the, the centurion. I believe, now help my unbelief, right? I, I, I see it, give me more of it. And that's what Moses does. I've seen the glory. Can I see more? Please show me your glory. And let's look at what the Lord says. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Y'all see how he says it? He says, here's what's going to happen. I will make all my goodness pass before you. He's going to give him a glimpse of his glory. And what will he show him? His goodness. His goodness. Now, we recognize that God is uh, great. God is good. Y'all know, y'all said the blessing tonight before, didn't you? We see him in his justice and his wrath. These are all attributes of God. What God is saying is, I'm going to show you my goodness. You're going to see how great and good I really am. I'm going to let that pass before you, my goodness. And what will that look like? It will be me proclaiming you my name. And whenever he gives him his name, he's telling him who he is. The name of God reflects the character of God. And so God's saying, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to give you my name. And when we get somebody's name, we have an intimate relationship with them. What do you call them? It's harder for us nowadays because we know so many. Now, but there's some people's name in this church. I'm not going to say who, and y'all don't come ask me. I just can't remember. You know what I'm saying? I know your face, I know you, uh, uh, but I can't remember your name. And so you come up to me, and I know I'm supposed to know your name, but it's too awkward now, so I'm not going to ask you your name anymore. You know what I'm saying? Is everybody good with that? Because that knowledge of the name is what you call. It's how you relate. It's how you call upon somebody. How can you have a relationship with somebody if you don't know their name? What do you call them? Hey, dude, you know, uh, old girl doesn't work. It's not very friendly. 
And so you sit here, how are you going to do it? Knowing the name is how you have a relationship and how you have intimacy. The Lord is saying, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to have intimate relationship. I'm going to show you who I am by having your name. And how will he do this? I will be gracious. I will be gracious. He's going to show him his goodness and he is going to show him his grace. I will be gracious. I'll make my goodness pass before you, proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I show mercy. The Lord is making a statement here about his sovereign grace. He's saying that I'm doing this not because I am compulsed to do this. I'm not forced to do this, Moses. I don't owe you the goodness that I'm going to show you. I don't owe you this opportunity. I don't owe you this chance. I will show you my goodness because I want to. That's what the Lord's saying. Because I'll show this to who I want to, when I want to, how I want to. No one can demand anything from God as if he is beholden to them. Anything we receive from God, we receive by the grace and mercy of God. Anything. You know why God created Adam and Eve? I remember I had an old sweet Sunday school teacher that taught me some of the worst heresies you could ever imagine in your life. And, and, and he would say things like, God created us, Adam and Eve, because he needed us. He needed to show his relationship. He needed to express, to express his love. There could not be more hogwash anywhere when you understand the scriptures. God didn't need any place to express his love. He has eternally been God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, loving graciously and kindly forever, right? He didn't need anything. To say that God needs something is to assume that he is not complete in what he has and who he is. And so ultimately, there is not a need in God. God created us, why? Because he wanted to. He wanted to create us for his glory. He wanted to show us his grace. He wanted to demonstrate his, his love to us. He did this out of his own sovereign grace and mercy so that he can show us these things. He wanted to. And so here, God is saying to Moses, you're asking for me to show, see my glory. I need you to know I'm not obligated to show you that. And the fact that I'm going to show you that is simply grace. Simply grace. And, and by the way, the fact that any of us in this room have ever seen or known the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, is only by the grace of God. That's why Paul says, don't any of y'all boast in who you are or what you've done in the fact that you're a believer. It's only by the grace of God can you boast. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who's redeemed you. And so he says here, I'm going to show you my glory and my grace in this one moment, and how I'm going to do this, I want you to see, he says, I will proclaim before you my name. He is going to give him a glimpse of his glory through his goodness and his grace by preaching a sermon to him about his name. By preaching a sermon about his name. It is a grace for all of us to hear sermons. Amen. The Lord says, I'm going to show you my goodness and my grace. I'm going to preach you a sermon. That's what I say for y'all every week. 
I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. By the way, this is not new. If you think that's Old Testament God, I've, hopefully I've disposed you of that such knowledge. But look with me to Matthew chapter 11. The very call of salvation to us is riding the wave of the sovereign grace of God. Does that make sense? The free call for us to repent and believe rides the sovereign grace wave, in other words. Look at what Jesus himself says in this famous passage. Now, you'll know part of this, but you may not have seen the first part. At that time, Jesus declared, he's, he's praying, declaring through prayer to the Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Do y'all know where I'm at? Did I tell y'all where I was? Good, Lord, I thought about it about halfway through the verse. Matthew 11, 30, 25. Yeah, I had to put my glasses back on. Let me start over. At that time, y'all there? All right. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The very ones who you would think would figure these out, the wise and understanding, they have it. But the very ones you think would be behind the little children, you know, they're the ones that know it. And who is that? Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do y'all see the grace here of this? In other words, the reason you know me, the reason you know who I am, the reason you are here is because I have brought you here. It's God who's done this, he said. And then what's the next verse? If y'all get the full, 27... Let me read all this together. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The invitation to come is riding the crest of the wave of the sovereignty and grace of God. Does that make sense to everybody? God has said, come to me, because he has chosen in his majesty and glory to demonstrate and show us who he is. And so if, if you come to the Father, it's because God, by his grace, has shown you his glory. And that's what he says to Moses. I'm going to show you who I am, but it's by my grace. It's by my grace. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall go. Now the Lord's going to demonstrate his grace to Moses by protecting Moses. God is going to show himself to Moses by protecting Moses from God. Does that make sense to everybody? Because he says this line in here. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So therefore, he tells him, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and our glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand, take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Here he gives a glimpse of, as one old, old uh, preacher used to say, the backside glory. 
You get a little bit of the fringes of God's grace, as one text says. You can get just the fringes because all you can take is a little bit of this. Y'all understand what he's saying there? He's saying that you can't handle the glory of God. You, this is more than you can bear. And that should be a joy to us because God has everything under control. And we can have confidence in who he is and what he's done. And all we've seen is just a glimpse of his glory. Just a little bit. And how much more is there? More than we could even bear. So he said, I'm going to protect you from me. So you hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to give you just a little glimpse of my glory. All for the grace showing the goodness of God. Revealing himself. And he says, I'm going to give you my name. So let's keep going in chapter 34. The Lord says to Moses... Then, continuing now, we're rebuilding after this sin of the golden calf. Remember what happened when Moses came down the mountain? He took the Ten Commandments that God had given him, written with his own finger, and smashed them and threw them down. They'd broken that. God is going to reestablish these Ten Commandments again. But he does a few things. Let's see this. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone. Notice what he's saying here. Cut for yourself two tablets of stone. I'm not, because of your sinfulness, you've got to do some things now. There's going to be some requirements for you. There's going to be some things going to do. So you've got to bring your own stone here. Does that make sense to everybody? You've got to show and demonstrate that you want me to be back in a relationship with you. So you bring your own stone here. And so he says, cut for me two stones like the first. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready, and I'm sure at that point, Moses like, my bad, sorry. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I want to notice a couple things. One, first, it's just Moses here. Moses is acting as the intermediary. He's acting as the one standing between the people. The Lord's already told, told him, Moses, I will show you my glory so you don't even let a sheep come near this mountain to see it, right? Nobody else can see this. Nobody else can do it. This is for you. You have begged me. You have stood in the way of the people. You have acted as an intermediary on their behalf, mediating this. I'm doing this because of your pleading. So you come up on the mountain, Moses. You come up on the mountain, and he goes up on the mountain, and there he has the tablets. You bring these. I'll write again on it. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. Just as he told him he would, God is going to show him his glory by proclaiming before him his name. And what does he say here? One of, I think, and I, again, I probably say this every week, one of the most important verses in the, in the Bible. I mean, legitimate, this verse is quoted, mentioned, and referred to something like eight times directly and referred to over and over again throughout the rest of Scripture. And it says what? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Lord is showing Moses his glory by proclaiming his name. And when he proclaims his name, he starts laying out his attributes. He says, here I am, the Lord, gracious, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping love for thousands. Here God is showing his glory by proclaiming his name. And when he proclaims his name, his glory is seen in his divine attributes, in his grace and in his mercy. But not just those divine attributes of grace and mercy and faithfulness and love. He says next, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but, got that but right in the middle of this whole thing. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Here the Lord says, this is who I am. I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving sins, transgressions, but I'm not going to clear the guilty. In other words, I am loving, gracious, and just. All at the same time. God is all of that at the same time. Now, this puts us in a conundrum because it seems contradictory, right? How is it that God is going to be merciful and gracious on one side and on the other side condemn sinners and not clear the guilty? How is it that he's going to be able to pull this off? How can he accomplish this, right? Well, by all means, I hope y'all already have that figured out. Because by, by this point, we're halfway through, almost finished with Exodus. And I hope y'all already know that the way the Lord is going to show his mercy and his grace and the forgiveness of sins and his justice and his wrath at the same time was by putting it all on one person. The intermediary. The one who would mediate on our behalf for us. Because how is he going to clear, not clear the guilty? There's not one guilty person that's going to get away with it, the Lord says. And how is that? Because on one person who also is fully God and fully man, he is going to put all of the sins of the world there. And so he will clear the guilty, not by just saying, you know what, forget your sin. He'll put their sin on another who can bear the weight of all of it on their behalf. Deuteronomy 34, 6 and 7 and 8 here speak to the grace and mercy of God in sending one who will intermediary, be an intermediary for us, a mediator for the people. And just as he told Moses, only you can do it, only you will see my glory, only Christ could enter into what we could do. He could only enter in for us. And I know I'm going, y'all want me to say like, where are you going? I'm just going to try to get to Jesus as quick as I can tonight. Is that all right with everybody? The practical implications of God's glory here being seen and proclaimed. First is simple. There's humility for the best of saints. No matter what, Whenever you see the glory of God, there is not anybody, no matter what you've achieved, 
no matter what you've accomplished, no matter what you have done on this earth, when you are coming to face to faith with God's glory, there's not any of you that's going to step up and say, ah, oh, that's not much. It will lead to the humility of all of creation, bowing down before him. That's why he says, when I come, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The idea here is not just bowing in compliance, right? Because many of us will bow in compliance. In fact, I hope you bow your knee already to the Lord and, and, and worship him and honor him. It's not a bowing in compliance that that passage is just simply speaking to, right? It's a bowing in understanding that you got nothing to offer when faced with this glory. It's an understanding here. So even those who are wicked will still bow because they recognize there's nothing they can say compared to this. Nothing they can offer. And so ultimately, when you see the glory of God, it's humility for the best of people. But not only that, it's hope for the worst of all of us. There's humility for the best of us, but there's hope for the worst of all of us. The glory of God speaks to his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his love and his faithfulness. It speaks to all of those things. And when you are confronted with that one, you think this one, this God can still, can still save me and loves me and has grace for me and mercy for me. There's humility for the best and hope for the worst. Not only that, there's help for every nation. Notice what Moses says, if I could just take you back. I don't want you to miss this because this runs throughout the Old Testament. The nations are there. Moses says, don't leave us. Don't leave us. Back in chapter 33, verse, verse uh, 16. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us, your glory there with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. What's the testimony here, the Lord is saying? What will the nations think about us? What will the nations think about you? God's glory goes so that the nations will know. It's one of my favorite passages is, uh, of course, I say that about all of them. I got, but, but you got David and Goliath, right? David, and I'm not, it's, it, we'll get to it later. David cuts Goliath's head off. Y'all know that. He didn't just pop him on the noggin with a rock. He took the man's sword and cut his head off. And then he put it all, put, chopped him up and put it over the four corners of the place. And you know why he said he did that? So the nations will know there is one God. That's why he said it. Goliath was out there mocking God saying, your God's not big enough, he's not strong enough, he can't do what he says he's going to do. And David, he said to him, I'm going to cut your head off. That's one of the greatest flexes in all of history. I'm going to cut your head off, and I'm going to let the nations know who the, who the real God is. That's the whole point of it. And here we see the same thing. Moses is saying, show your glory so everybody will know. God shows his glory to us so the nations will know that there's hope for them even. But not only that, God's glory is, brings honor to his name. When he proclaims here, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger. He, he uses Yahweh here. Remember, surely Moses remembers the bush that was burning and not consumed. My name, you know, I am who I am, Yahweh. He says that, Yahweh, Yahweh. And now he's going to even expound on what that means more. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's who I am. Here's my glory. It's seen in who I, my, my very attributes that are on display for each and every one of you. By the way, I, I made the joke about preaching earlier. I believe, and this is not just simple with me, but just a, 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 an amalgamation of others. I believe that what preaching is, is speaking words, right? That's what I'm doing. I talk for a living. Y'all know what I'm saying. Speaking words so that you can see the glory of God. Does that make sense to everybody? Not so just you can hear it. My role as the preacher is to proclaim the name and attributes of God so that you can see his glory. So you can see it. Now, I'm the first to tell you that is not just something you stand up and do as if it's a, a, a speech to give. That is an event. The preaching of God's word, and here I go, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a preacher, so I'm just going to sound, sound, sound like I'm talking about myself, the, but I'm not. The preaching of God's word is an event. It is God's called one proclaiming God's message to God's people for God's glory, right? That's not just some get up and let's talk. The role and responsibility of the pastor preacher is to proclaim the name of God so that you can see the glory of God. Exactly here what happens for Moses. Proclaim the name. That's why I'm not interested really in getting up and just telling you, and there's a place for this. Y'all don't get mad at me, but I'm not just simply getting up and telling you five ways to be a better dad. You see what I'm saying? I think we can talk about that. I'm not just simply trying to get up, you get up to, to figure. I need to get up and proclaim the glory and majesty of God. Now, we can do all that other stuff, but this is what preaching is right here. Show me your glory, all right? I am merciful and gracious. That's my glory. I'm slow to anger. That's my glory. I'm rich in love and I forgive sinners. That's my glory. That's it. Moses said, that's what I want. And verse 8, I love how it puts it. And Moses, quickly, y'all got your Bible? Circle that word, quickly. Moses, quickly, bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. When God shows him his glory, proclaiming his faithfulness, his attributes, his name, Moses knows that there's only one response and let me get to it as fast as I possibly can. And he worships. He worships. And he said, if now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses prays again, the fifth time in this passage after this. We see his worship comes before prayer. Adoration comes before petition, right? 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Adoration comes before. He worships and then he calls on the Lord. Take for us. We know we're stiff-necked. It's in the midst of their sinfulness. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Admit it's that only God can do this. And take us for your inheritance. A recognition that they're desperate for him. And he said, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. So here the Lord is going to renew his covenant again with them. He comes down, he says, verse 11, he's going to tell them what to do. He says, you want to observe. This is how they worship, by the way. What I commanded this day, behold, I'll drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I know y'all are impressed. That's why I want to do that again. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. That's their gods. In other words, you're going into their land. Don't you leave a speck of their gods there. We're, we're dealing with the minor prophets. And while dealing with the minor prophets now, you're starting to see the residue of the people not following the commands of God to get rid of the gods of the nation. And he says there in verse 14, an important verse, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. He's a jealous God. He says, he told Moses, I'm going to proclaim my name to you, right? And so he says to him, here's my name, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful, gracious, loving, kind. And then when he comes back here, he says, my name is jealous. This is a way God is saying, again, revealing his very nature revealing his very nature to Moses. When he says, my name is jealous, what that means is you were to have no other gods before me. It's fitting perfectly in context with the fact they just made a golden calf. That's not what I've called. You are to have no other gods there. In fact, God's jealousy is a righteous jealousy for his name not to be shared in glory for any other. It's not good. It's really, you'd have to convince me really hard of a righteous jealousy you may have. But I think you can. We have a righteous jealousy for our husbands and wives, don't we? We have a righteous jealousy not to share them with another. That's right. And what the Lord is saying here is, watch this. He goes on and he says, for lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods. Did any of y'all hear me use the word whore this past Sunday? Did that make y'all cringe? Because I got scared. I said it. It was straight in the Bible and I was like, I can't believe I just read that. <laughs> in this context, the Lord is again saying there is a covenant relationship between us. Like a husband and a wife, right? There is a covenant relationship between us and you are not to break that relationship. I'm jealous for it. That's my name. You don't bring in other gods into this relationship. That's why he would call them whenever they go after other gods throughout all of scripture. And this word starts, in the land when they a whore after other gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited. You eat of his sacrifice and you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself gods of cast metal. He's saying if, if you continue to follow the other gods, it's like committing adultery to me. God is a jealous God. That's his name. 
He has an exclusive relationship with you. And you are not to break it. You are not to break it. This goes through the New Testament too. I think I mentioned this this past Sunday. James chapter 4 verse 1. Whenever, whenever the people are not following after the Lord, he says what? You adulterous people. It's a relationship that God has given. It's, a, it's, it's that relationship. He says you don't break this. So you are a, he is a jealous God revealing his name that this relationship we have is exclusive. It's exclusive. And he tells them how to worship. Don't make yourself any gods of cast metal. He, he kind of walks through again some of the things of the Ten Commandments, thinking through those stones that are there, writing on them again. Um, and so all the way down, six days, he reinstates the, the uh, Sabbath there in verse 21, reinstates the feast days, which recognizes worship of what God has done, commemorating what God has done for them. Um, feast of weeks, feast of unleavened bread, feast of ingathering years in. Three times in a year your male shall appear before God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you. I will enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord God three times in the year. In other words, I'm going to make sure you have everything you need. I'm going to fulfill, fulfill the promises. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, Sacrifice the feast of the Passover, reestablishing all of these rhythms of worship within the people uh, and the, the, the calendar of the people. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 27, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. We see Moses here having going back all the way to, to, to Exodus 24, we see he's been here with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He's been this time there on Mount Sinai receiving. He came down because the Lord told him to go down because they made a golden calf. And now he's back there with him getting the commandments again. He neither ate nor drank, demonstrating here in this fasting time that his dependence, that his sustenance was the Lord, not water or bread, right? He was depending. The Lord was sustaining him. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil. When he came out, and when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded, and the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Notice when Moses would speak to them, it would be with his face shining, not with the veil on He's relating to them the words of God, having seen the glory of God. And it wasn't just him on the mountain. Just recognize it wasn't just him on the mountain that after that moment he, his face. And any time he went into the tent, it said he came out, his face was shining. It was a testimony that he had been with God. He had, he had been in that presence. And so Moses would put the veil over his head. Why? Because 
the shining face would wear out. And he didn't want the people to see it. He didn't want them to see that glory disappear. Notice what this says. Turn with me and we'll finish in 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter three. Paul is speaking exactly about this event. He's talking about their ministry now at this point on this side of Christ. He says, such is the confidence that we have, verse 4, through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end... Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? He's comparing what happened with Moses in the old covenant to what's happened now in the new covenant with Christ. He said, Remember, when he came then, Moses' face would shine and, and they didn't even want to look at him. How much more so now, he's saying, with the Spirit? And he keeps going. He keeps going. For it, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, y'all know what he means here. The law condemns. Anybody that tells you, I've heard people say before that if you could just keep the law, there would be, this is actually a movement, by the way, it's another heresy. If you would just keep the law, there would be no need for Christ. Because if you could have kept the law, then you would have been holy before God, right? But Paul says that the law was given to show you you're a sinner. That's why the law was given. To law, the law was given to show you your need for Christ. For all have broken the law, but it was a schoolmaster, a teacher to you, to teach you that you had to have somebody step in on your behalf and keep it for you, that you were condemned before God because you were a lawbreaker. So he says, look, the face, his face shone there when he came down with those tablets. The glory was seen in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. It's not as if that glory was fake. Now there's a greater glory that's come, Paul says. It's not as if what happened with Moses, well, that's real. That, well, he saw the glory, that's real. But now what happened to Moses there's something even greater than what Moses saw that has come for us, Paul says. There's something even greater. Keep going. Indeed, in this case, what once a glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. If the old covenant there at Sinai had glory, think about what now has come in Christ and how much glory it has because it's never going to pass away. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what has been brought to an end. He's saying Moses had a little bit of fear, right? He even says it. Very, we're bold, not like Moses. He put the veil over his face because he didn't want the people to know that his face stopped shining. 
That the glory didn't last forever that came off the law, right? That it didn't last. He's saying, so he put a veil on his face so he, he didn't want them to know. So when he went back into the tent, he would unveil. His face would glow being in the presence and glory of God. He would come out, show that face glowing, give the commandments, tell them what God says, put the veil over because he didn't want them to see that it would come to an end. And so there was a fear there, but we have more boldness than Moses. We have more boldness. Why do we have more boldness? Their minds were hardened, he says in verse 14. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. He's saying when they read the old covenant, if they don't see Christ, they're reading it with the same veil. I've said this to you a thousand times. I'll say it to you a thousand more if I stay here long enough. All of scripture is pointing us to Jesus Christ. He is the message of God's word. In Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22, Jesus is the message. He is the word. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It is about him. So the proclamation for me, let, let me get to it. I don't, don't want to get up. How much time I got? Five, oh goodness, four minutes and 21 seconds. Their minds were hardened for this day, for when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, when we have Christ and understand who he is, then we see God, as Hebrews 1 will say, in Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God. As John 1 would say, what was hidden now has been revealed in the fact that Jesus came and tabernacled with us. We have seen his glory. Jesus is the great demonstration of the glory of God because when we look to Christ, what do we see? We see Deuteronomy 34, 6 and 7 lived out before us. He is merciful and he's gracious and he's loving, and he forgives our sins, and he doesn't clear the guilty. He declared himself guilty so that we could walk free. We see it laid out, and we see the glory of God on display in the faith. Oh, I hadn't gotten there yet. Hold on. He says, we see with unveiled face. We've got no reason to cover our face because when Christ comes into our life, we shine the light of the gospel of Christ, and it never fades out. It never disappears. We are the light of the world. And we don't hide that light under a bushel because it never will burn out. It did for Moses. It doesn't for us. We have Christ. Therefore, verse chapter four, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Why? Because we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, we don't have a reason to, to dress up this message. We don't have a reason to, to try to ease it in and make it go down easier for you guys. We just simply proclaim Jesus. 
We don't have to do underhanded things. We don't have to do some message in some way. We just simply give you Christ. That's enough, he says. We don't practice cunning or tamper with God's word. We openly proclaim the truth. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, we have a greater ministry than even Moses. Moses saw the glory of God and his face shined, but that shine went out. We see the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, and that light never burns out. So we proclaim that. And when we proclaim him, we are calling on that name that spoke light into darkness, that made light out of nothing. We're calling on that name to speak into our own very hearts to shine the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, whose face is shining there in 2 Corinthians 4? Jesus, the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that light never burns out. And what we've called to be, do is give testimony to that light. We reflect that light. We give testimony to that light. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We give testimony to him. And the goal of preaching is to proclaim the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that you can see, see him for who he is. Gracious and merciful, loving and kind, forgiving and patient, we proclaim him. Just, not clearing the guilty, but calling the guilty to trust him with their life and salvation. That's what we proclaim. I find it amazing as we look at these stories of the Old Testament, how the scriptures point us to the fact that what we have was even better than what they have. And we look back and we say, man, that'd be cool. Moses' face glowed. I'm telling you, your face, when you have the knowledge of Christ Jesus, glows even greater than his. And it never goes out. So we shine for the name of Christ as the light of the world into the darkness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ and who he is and what he has done. And may it be Christ who we proclaim every day, all day. May we shine brightly for his name and for your glory. All this we ask in his name, even now. Amen.